Hello, and welcome to this week's inaugural interview episode with Susan Epps. She's a self-proclaimed goofy nerd, educator, and mom of two, and she's a veteran independent school senior administrator, equity and inclusion consultant, and so much more. I'm really excited for you to hear from her because she's half black, half Chinese, and we'll dive into a lot of what that meant for her growing up and just her quest to find that sense of belonging and to really own all those different parts of herself. It's a hilarious interview. I hope that you'll laugh as much as I did while I was conducting the interview. She also does something towards the middle latter part of the interview where she turns the tables and interviews me, which was really exciting. Remember to tune in on Friday as well for a mindfulness practice that ties all of this in. You do not need to be an expert meditator by any means. It's simply an opportunity for you to take some quiet time and to hopefully, ideally, glean some ways that you can find your way home and really embrace who you are and your authentic self. So without further ado, let's dive in. Okay, welcome back to the Fuck Saving Face podcast, where we explore all things you know, about mental and emotional health, break taboos, and really explore what it means to be Asian American in the world today, and how we can further along this conversation, um, this cultural dialogue, and just create a sense of, you know, place and being seen and being heard. So I'm really excited to have Susan Epps here today. Um, a little background, we have a fun connection. So one of my dearest friends, Denise, is Susan's cousin. And I remember hearing Denise throughout the years of our friendship talk about her cousin, who is half black, half Asian. And I was like, oh, that's such a fascinating mix. Just knowing like, you know, when I was growing up in LA and like, you know, thinking about all the different, um, challenges because I lived through like the riots and like all of the different like cultural fighting. So um, I'm here today because, well, she was recently featured in USA Today, which, you know, we can talk about that because it was all about like not working makeup after the pandemic and really embracing um, a new aesthetic for women, which I think is fabulous. I remember going to like an OBGYN and them talking about how like wearing thongs is such like a patriarchal thing because it's like so not good for you know women's body parts and all this kind of stuff so fascinating when like we move the conversation forward of like embracing female beauty <laughs> so that's one thing we could talk about um which has also been a private school administrator and educator and really moving um equity and inclusion that conversation along for the last 20 years um so I'm just going to turn it over to Susan really quickly, just for you to explain, you know, a little bit of your story and your background and even how you culturally identify. Absolutely. So I love this question because I feel like at different points in my life, the answer has been very different <laughs> um, for sure. I mean, when I compare, you know, Susan in middle school, Susan in high school, Susan in college, grad school, and then as a parent and mom, it's shifted slightly. But something that has always, always been a constant is that I have identified myself as multiracial, but because all of my identifiers are of color and categorized as minority, and I feel like I don't have the same options and choices, nor do I want to choose to say, you know, I just choose to be Asian or I just choose to be black. I actually identify fully. I don't, I usually don't, I used to say, you know, I'm half, you know, African-American, I'm half, you know, Chinese, but I learned as I, as I grew up, that's not how I feel. I feel a hundred percent. I feel like I'm double instead of half. And Ooh. so for me, I feel like I am like double, triply, quadruply blessed and that I have these two amazing identifiers. So I definitely identify as, you know, Asian and black a hundred percent. So that is me. Um, my quickly, my family background is, oh, it's so unique. My dad was in the military. <laughs> he was in the Navy. He was stationed in Taiwan, met this hot chick, you know, <laughs> and amazing. That would be my mom. And uh, they got married. And uh, that's how I came to be and my brother came to be. So yes, very unique story. I'm sure you've never heard of that one before. Well, the military story, yes. But I need to ask you because yeah. growing up, as an Asian, you know, very like traditionally raised, um, we just had some, I mean, my parents were like racist for the most part, like, you know, like I think that that was very standard for Chinese families. So like, uh, <laughs> how did that relationship unfold? Like, did your mom get a lot of flack? Like what happened? That would be an affirmative. And <laughs> I wasn't there when they met. So I've, I've tried to piece things together by what, and my mom and dad are divorced and have been long divorced for a long time, for decades. And so for me, I've tried to piece together from my aunts, from my, you know, cousins, from my, 
from anybody that knew them, like, what was this like? And I think that when my mom, my dad actually spoke Chinese, oh. he was a linguist. He spoke, you know, according to him, <laughs> he said, I, you know, I knew Chinese and Russian fluently, which means he was probably fine in a Russian or Chinese restaurant. Who knows what that really means? I don't know. Fluency, you know, I don't know. But um, what's interesting is that I think he said that they met at a party instant, you know, attraction and connection. And yeah, they fell in love. And what I do know from my own life, but also from what I've gathered from my relatives, is that my grandfather was not having it. My grandfather was just like, oh, hell to the no. And um, I remember, so we lived with my grandmother and grandfather in, and my grandfather was like a four-star general for Chiang Kai-shek. He wasn't like, you know, just a regular old citizen. He had his beliefs, he had his values. They probably didn't, um, probably didn't mesh with him having like, you know, Negro children. It was grandchildren. It was very, very tough for him. And so for me, I remember being young and being with my grandmother and grandfather. And I don't remember having any kind of warmth or connection to my grandfather. However, comma, we lived in the home with them. Mm. But my grandmother was amazing. I mean, she adored, loved me, fed me constantly. She was a little chubby. I was a little chubby. It was fine. But um, yeah, it was amazing. And I remembered um, that, but it's, what's interesting is that we lived there until I was about four and a half, almost five. And during that time, we went to you know Chinese schools, which is interesting. I went to preschool. My brother went to elementary school. My brother and I looked differently. Mm. And that was a huge factor in how we were received by Asian family, by, you know, we were Chinese living in Taiwan, which all my relatives will make sure they clarify, living there by the Taiwanese and by our Chinese family, and then coming over to America. Um, yeah, it, I am very, like, I'm pretty fair compared to my brother. My brother has more, he has brown skin. However, my brother has, you know, straight hair. He looks what other people have said, that he looks 100% Asian with a really, really intensely good tan. You know what I mean? <laughs> So that, that's, that, that's kind of him. And for me, you know, um, my relatives who are black, they're, they're just like, well, you're the more, you know, kind of black as far as um, looking one, because, you know, I had wavy, big, fat, curly hair, and I looked a little differently, and I looked more multiracial than he did. He looked monoracial Asian with, again, a wicked tan. <laughs> and then for me, it was interesting, living in Taiwan when I was little, skin color is a thing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I found like I, even though my features might be more multiracial or more African-American, the skin color was what it was. And so I tended to be somebody who was more accepted. And I think that was because I was so fair and it was like a skin color thing. So that was the beginning of life. It was colorism within our own family and colorism, you know, in the Far East. So that is that, that's the beginning. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, it's one of the reasons that I moved away from Asia as well is because my daughter is half Asian, half white. And so she's very fair skinned with the big eyes and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so the first thing that anybody ever says when they see her in Asia is, oh, she's so beautiful or like, you know, whatever. And like, I mean, I had people stopping to try to take her picture, like random things. So I'm like, yeah, we're not doing this. Like, this is not, <laughs> especially as uh, a parent who sends my daughter to a Waldorf school where like, you know, they don't have any commercialization on any of their clothing. It's like very, very neutral and focused on like the inward development. That's very, very interesting. Do you ever talk to your mom about like what their relationship was like when, you know, they got together and all of that? Neither my mother or my father have ever been willing to talk to me about it. They're like, that is adult business. And I was like, I'm 112. It's not like (laughs) I'm not seven asking you. And I really started asking them probably in high school and then in college. And I was like, I'm an adult. Now I'm an adult with children. I don't know. So <laughs> very, I don't know, private, secretive. Interesting. Or about it. I don't know. I don't know if they're afraid that if we open it, all these things will come out. I have no idea. So I don't know what their life was like. I just know from, you know, other relatives. Mm. And so... Your parents also got divorced, which is also non-traditional in, yeah. And what happened then? How old were you or how old were they? I was four and a half uh, and my brother was, I guess, nine-ish. And what's interesting is that um, they got divorced, you know, here in this country. And this is 1976-ish, maybe. And I'm sorry, 1976, not too many black men, not too many men even get custody of children my black dad got custody of us full custody of us 
Wow. Something that was very, I don't even know the story, the ins and outs, you know, of what that is about, but I do know that that is rare. That is rare. So that happened. Hmm. Interesting. And has your dad ever talked to you about what it's like for him to like, you know, when you were growing up walking around with like biracial children and like what that feeling was like for him? So he, I remember my recollection of when, you know, I started to first have memories and ideas were um, people, my whole family, but definitely him saying, you know, we're all the same. We're all equal, very rose colored glasses, you know, colorblind kind of thing. I think that was very, very, you know, common for the seventies and eighties. So it, it wasn't until I got a little bit older that he really got super Afrocentric and started wearing dashikis. And he was like, you know, back to Africa and all this stuff. And I'm just like, what is happening right now? You said we were all alike. It didn't matter, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and so, and then he, you know, kind of switched his tune, mm-hmm. I think because, you know, decades and times, you know, shifted, but also his own ideology and identity shifted. It wasn't always about assimilating, mm-hmm. which I think both of them probably had in common, like, you know, let's just be American, the American dream. But I think his identity shifted and that definitely impacted, I think, how I saw the world and saw myself. Mm. That was very interesting. Well, for example, when I first came to this country, we lived in Washington, D.C. My dad was um, a military officer. He was in the Navy. And um, he decided he didn't want me to go to the military, like to a military DOD type of school. So I went to a school in Southeast Washington, D.C., which is historically black. And I went to an all black elementary school. I walked in. I couldn't speak English. Nobody, Nobody People were like, I think they forgot to teach me English. So, you know, I didn't speak any English. I was an ESL student. And I went to the school and the first thing kids said when I walked in, they took their fingers and they did this to their, they, you know, they pulled their eyes and they said, Chinese people never cuss, asshole, asshole. And I remember that. And there were so many like microaggressions and micro insults that were very Asian specific. Um, they weren't black specific because everybody was black. So what made me different was being the Asian girl who couldn't speak English. Interesting. That's that, was so my, that was my entree into America, <laughs> let me tell you. And I also, the first day I went to school, um, I was on the bus and didn't get off the bus because my bus um, got off on a military base. All the houses look alike. Oh. And I, was like, I didn't speak English either. So, I mean, legend has it. I was, you know, at the police station or whatever, the military police station. And my neighbor, who we called Aunt Kathleen, got a call or somebody got a call and they had to get this little Chinese girl (laughs) home. So anyway, so my life was very much, let's throw you into America, girl. I look like Moana, however, (laughs) very much treated like Mulan. So that is, that was my entree into American life. That's really fascinating too, that your father, you know, like started identifying with his, like, with, being more of that black identity because just like you said your family clarified they're Chinese but living in Taiwan like that was when I grew up I thought my family was Taiwanese I had no idea no they were not Taiwanese they fled China and went to Taiwan and then later when I was in college my parents decided to identify with their Chinese identity and I'm like what is happening right now it's like all of a sudden you're deciding to like choose a different race like I didn't understand that (laughs) how did you navigate that and we're going to talk about how you know you also grew up in the deep south too so that yeah. <laughs> yeah how did i navigate him? well so here's the thing i mean he's always with black identified because mm-hmm. he you know walks the world like you know he's a he's a black man and he grew up in dolomite alabama which is very mm-hmm. very southern but um in a very segregated south mm-hmm. and so he's always been black but i think because my dad you know he you know through the military and because quite frankly i think he's very very smart like he is, he is incredibly, he's a smart, he's a charismatic, he is, um, yeah, he's just a bright kind of scrappy person. He knew, even though he might not have had, you know, private school educations, I mean, he grew up in the segregated South in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So that's a different era where he didn't have access to different things. But my dad totally like tore up like any kind of opportunity. He's like, ooh, let's seize that. Let's seize mm. that and make it bigger. So um he always knew he was black. However, he always knew he lived in a white universe. Mm. And I, to me, my 
take on it is that when he was in the military, you know, people thought this is somebody who's really bright. This, 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 this person has potential and can go somewhere. And so I think that he took advantage of mentors. He took advantage of programming. He got his education and graduate degree all with, you know, through the military. And he actually went into the Navy enlisted and they promoted him to be, you know, an officer. And that doesn't happen too much. You either stay enlisted or you go in as an officer, but he really elevated himself. But I think my dad, you know, he had lots of white friends. He also had black friends too. But in that time to have the, the amount and the close connection with, you know, white friends and white families, it wasn't as common as it is now. Mm -hmm. And so for him, he knew how to navigate that world. But I think that as we got older, to me, what I now with my adult eyes and now as a parent looking you know at him I think he wanted to make sure that he established you know the afrocentricness of it all if you will because he knew that he had two children who were going to go out into the universe mm -hmm. and maybe at the beginning of life he was just like everybody's great everybody's mm -hmm. the same he's like that's not the case mm -hmm. I need to prepare these children mm -hmm. they're going to walk through the world as definitely children of color not like him as somebody who's monoracial black and black identified, but he was just like, I need to prepare them. And so I think he shifted and got a little stronger. And I think if I had to guess, it was probably out of love, parental love and wanting to prepare mm -hmm. um, his children for hardship. That is my take. Am I an eternal optimist? <laughs> yes. Um, kid, I, I can probably, I'm probably idealizing some of my childhood too. And trust me, a lot of it was crappy, but that part of it, I think was, was pretty good. But as time wore on, I mean, you could even see by the things that my dad chose to involve himself in, even the way that he dressed, I was like, Ooh, Africa is here. Mm. Africa is here. So it's interesting. Yeah. Did he ever like say anything to you raising you, you know, did he ever impart any like wisdom or caution or anything like that, given whatever his experiences were? Well, what's interesting is that I think that a lot of what is out there in the universe, as far as, you know, people with other multiracial children and people uh, just in general was either black and white or black and white. So I think he was in a territory kind of, you know, out there on his own. So um, what he imparted to me was, I remember when I was younger and these memories obviously aren't as fresh, but I mean, he, he can't, you can't not acknowledge that my brother and I were very Asian, we, you know, and that we spoke Chinese fluently, went to Chinese schools. We have this, and my brother especially looks incredibly to me Asian. I, I think I look like I'm multiracial and you can tell what I am. But it's interesting is that um, when I was younger, I think it was more kind of what I grappled with on a day-to-day -day basis was my Asian identifier mm. because that's what came out of my mouth. And also when I was little, I looked a little bit different. I was just looking at a picture on my wall downstairs and, you know, my hair was straighter, you know what I mean? And I, I just, I felt like I, I mean, I don't know, you kind of can change ethnicity um, as you get older, especially if you're multiracial. So I felt like a lot of it was just like Asian versus American, mm. you know, and let me just, you know, help you usher you into this American world. So it was like the it, Asian American, those are the identifiers that were kind of fighting with each other. Then I got older. It was more like, Asian and black are very different things. And then I got older, it was like of color versus whiteness. Mm. So mm. it kind of changes, it kind of changes, yeah. Interesting, I mean, so one of the things that I think is um, fascinating too, before we jumped on, we talked about um, the term people of color and also, you know, you going into different programs where, yeah. and schooling, where they are predominantly black and how you were perceived there. So can you talk a bit about like your journey through education and like your experiences there as you started to grow um, into your teen and like young twenties? Yes. And I would like to also comment on the fact that I cannot stand the term BIPOC. Mm -hmm. And I think that people have definitely distorted mm -hmm. and totally, you know, is crapified a word? I don't think it is. They totally distorted and made gross and yucky and boogery the term <laughs> people of color. You know, mm. yeah. Can you talk a little bit like why is it that you don't like BIPOC? Because I mean, we were saying that like growing up, I was recognized as a minority, so like mm -hmm. that is how I identified. So when all of this current cultural conversation came in and people were saying like people of color and whatnot, I was like, wait, but wait, what? Like, I don't understand where, what, where am I supposed to go? How do I identify someone else? I don't know, even my. I have a very close um, Latina friend and she's like, I don't even think I identify as a person of color. Like, I'm not sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, for me, and as an educator and somebody who's trying to teach children, you know, K through 12, how to navigate like identity and racial identity. So me personally, I cannot stand the word BIPOC. When it came out, um, I was just like, are you kidding? Because honestly, the experiences 
of the B's, the I's, the P's, and the O's, and the C's are not at all similar. Um, and number two, I feel like there is a lot of tension and history among different groups of quote unquote people of color that are identified as BIPOC, where there could be, you know, a huge transgression, a huge insult, you know, a lot of harm that has been done within this group. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I mean, I don't need to give an example, it's pretty obvious, but, you know, I've been in BIPOC affinity groups and I have experienced harm and it's, it's just been very tough. I remember, it's so funny, I was having, I was in a meeting one day and we were talking about, this is years ago, but we were talking about affirmative action. And it was interesting, and this is one of my Asian, not only was she Asian, she was also Chinese. So mm -hmm. she was like super duper my sister, you know what I mean? And this is somebody who was my friend, my colleague, and we were talking about it and she was talking about an article that she was reading about affirmative action. And she's just like, you know, it really makes me sad. And she was talking about black people as stealing seats and, mm. you know, you know, Asian people having um, their quotas because, you know, our, our, our scores and our grades, she was, you know, giving me the, you know, the little elbow to the side, like you agree with me. And I was like, are you cray? Because mm. you're actually talking about my people, you know, too, and saying that black people don't deserve. And she wasn't talking about whether or not the system was equitable, whether access was equitable, never talked about systemic or, you know, institutional racism. Yeah. So I'm just like, whoa. And to me, to be here and to have harm in a, in a group that's supposed to be a safe place. So BIPOC is very, 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 very tough term for me because I feel like we're not a united group. We're not a united group and we have a very different history. Yeah. So every BIPOC, um, you know, uh, event I've been to or affinity group, has been fraught and uncomfortable and not a safe place. So I don't love that. I don't love that. And I also feel like um, a lot of people don't understand what the BIPOC means. And a lot of people are saying, well, my, my last name is Rodriguez, even though you know, my 23andMe says I'm like 99% you know, Anglo-Saxon, white, European, I'm a wasp. And I said, you know, there's a difference between you know, ethnicity and you know, racial identity. And I think it all gets murky with the BIPOC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't love that. As far as of color, this kind of leads to the question you originally asked me, which was like, you know, how did you identify growing up? When I grew up, um, of color meant black people. Mm -hmm. Like people of color meant black people growing up for sure. Um, I went to a black Southern church, which is interesting. And so, and for me, you know, my life was different when I was with my, you know, my mom, you know, in California, my existence was very Asian. When I was in the South, you know, with my dad and my, um, other mom, who is, you know, I guess technically and officially my stepmother, but she raised me since I was eight, they're both monoracial black people. So mm -hmm. I have very different existences. But I will say that of color, to me, always growing up, always just meant black people. And it originated to talk about black people. And so as we've gone on, though, people have just, I don't know who the people are. I don't know who the they are. They are. <laughs> everybody together, but lumped everybody together. And now, you know, I feel like I don't like that term because it originally you know, started out being, you know, a better term um, than colored, mm -hmm. you know, or anything that begins with the letter N. So mm -hmm. yay for that as far as mm -hmm. better. However, comma, to include everybody underneath the umbrella, so much confusion has happened. You have people who are, you know, white, but Middle Eastern identified. You have some people who are Hispanic, but white and Hispanic and not Latinx identified saying like, am I of color? I am of color. And then some people choose to choose it at times and other. And that, that's, that's not cool. It's not accurate. It doesn't feel authentic and it just feels kind of gross. Mm -hmm. So I don't like either one of those terms today in 2021, February. I changed my mind a lot. You know what I mean? Like as I grow and I get to know people and I hear other perspectives, things can definitely color uh, who I am. But right now I just don't like those terms. Do you have a suggestion for like a better term? I mean, like that's what I was grappling with before. And also like, why do we even have to figure out some like identifier? Because all of this is just continually creating like separation from, you know, like anything else but I think it's just such a charged um space and it's hard I, yeah <laughs> I'm wondering if it's not people who are you know non-white doing it I'm like who's doing this yes like, white people saying that I need you to do this I don't yes. know no so I'm not really sure where it originated right. so for me I mean with exceptions for sure but for the most part I think people should be able to self-identify and then just that's who they are and they don't have to be lumped in you know, different, you know, groupings. I think you should self, I think being proud of where you are and who you're from, that's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. When people, if there are preconceived and, you know, preformed categories, I mean, life isn't the census, you know what I mean? You shouldn't have to pick boxes. Yeah. And so 
feels very boxy. And so I personally don't love that. And I wish people could. And my exception is unless you're stupid, you know what I mean? <laughs> if you're dumb, you should not be able to self-identify because there are a couple, most people are smart and people are nice and people are good. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple people who are stupid and those stupid people will be like, well, you know, I know like technically I'm like Irish, English, and Scottish American, but I majored, you know, I went to Wesleyan or I went to <laughs> and I majored in, you know, Native American Indigenous Studies. So I feel like I want to self-identify as that. I was like, oh, hey, sit down. <laughs> sit your butt down. So for those like 0.001% or more who are stupid, I don't think they should be able to self-identify and then ruin the safe spaces and also take on the identities of people who that is the way they walk through life and that is who their heritage is. Mm. So that's I mean, I think that your conversation about safe spaces is so important and so much of like, you know, I've mentioned this before in a previous episode, but if you listen to Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, he talks about like, how did this outside white culture come in and dominate, you know, South Africa? It's because they created infighting amongst, you know, like the groups who are already there, like the native populations. So I think that so much of all of this is like, you know, if you are afraid and you're not strong in who you are, it makes it really hard to stand up to anybody else. And in the world today, there's so many people who could use advocates and so many groups that could use support. I mean, just, I'm not in groups, just humanity, just humanity in general could use a lot of like help and support. But like, I think the goal is to create a better understanding of ourselves so that we can then speak up and feel proud and feel like inclusive, genuinely inclusive, because if we're rejecting any parts of ourselves, then it makes it really hard to not reject somebody else. Like however we're showing up in the world, you know, it's often a reflection of ourselves. But um, for you, like, you know, you would mention you went to Wellesley, you know, Spelman, Georgetown, all of that. And then the experience that you had when you went to Cal (laughs) for grad school. Um, But what was that like going to, you know, those universities and starting to really, the other part of this question is just that um, in all the people that I've spoken to, a lot of the times this racial or cultural identity doesn't really become a prominent part of your awareness or your psyche until you're older. And part of it is because when you're young, you're just trying to figure out life in general, but also, you know, like it seems to be something of a privilege to be able to take a little bit of time and space to reflect upon who you are and how you want to show up. Um, If you're trying to survive day to day, it makes it hard to think about like any other, you know, topics. But yeah, but can you just talk a bit about that, about your experience? So I will say that my uh, racial identity, it's, it's, it's amazing. And how actually I was perceived by the universe, wherever my universe happened to take place. So definitely, you know, as you know, I would say, the first time I really thought about it was when I, or I noticed it, it was a thing, a huge thing, like beyond my Chinese people never cuss, a terrible racial thing that happened in kindergarten. Um, When I was in middle school, we moved, my family moved from Okinawa, Japan to Florabama, which is on the border of Florida and Alabama. It is Pensacola, Florida. It's a big naval hub. And so we moved to Pensacola. And what is fascinating is that when uh, I came to school, I was, everybody's like, oh, somebody really exotic. <laughs> that word. Ah! You know what I mean? The <laughs> time or two in my life. But somebody really exotic joined our school. And um, everybody in, to me, what it felt like was everybody was black and white. I didn't, I didn't see Asian people. You know, I didn't notice. Um, very black, white, Southern space. And it was very no multiracial, just very monoracial, black and white. And I was like, ooh. And then it was interesting. I heard a couple of days after being there that um, somebody, uh, a Japanese person, uh, joined uh, the school. And I was like, oh my gosh, I totally want to meet her. And two of my friends were like, that's you. And I was like, <laughs> Japanese? They said, but the principal said, or the teacher said that you were from Okinawa. I was like, yeah, I'm a military brat. I'm a military junior. You know what I mean? I was like, not at all. But what's interesting is that because I wasn't black or white and I definitely look different and I don't look monoracial black and white, people just put me into a group and the group they put me in was white. Hmm. So all my friends were white, you know, in school. Um, and it was very segregated, very hmm. segregated. So I ate with white people at the lunch table. When I got, when I was in classes, I was in classes with all white people. When I was in PE, the girls would get together and it was the white girls dressing together and the black girls dressing together. I was never, ever part of black, the black population in middle school. Mm. As I went to high school, and I went to a high school, it was called Booker T. Washington High School. 
interesting. It was majority white um, as far as the population. And I was in classes with all white people. I was, I was in the AP classes and I was in the accelerated classes. And I was in, however, however, there were two other Asian people, I think in the school, at least that I knew of, one was Jean Lin, a good friend of mine, and one was, um, I think his name was Chris Cho. And he and I were both um, multiracial. He was white and Asian. I was black and Asian. Jean was monoracial, I believe, Chinese. It's interesting. So in high school, I don't think people like racially categorized me. They just, I was just that other person. And then it's so funny, when I graduated, Chris and I won the math award. Math is not my forte. I was like, that is some racist Asian stuff right there. And it's so funny, when they, when they said our names, I heard a white guy say, here's it would be them. And I was like, dude, I'm better in humanities. I don't know why I got this award. You know what I mean? I also got the, the theater drama awards. I was like, okay, that balances. But I was like, I got it? Did I really do the math? Like, I'm good in math. Like, you know what I mean? But I'm not like, that's not my thing. <laughs> I get, got the math award. So that was kind of just like, you know, high school and below. But when I got to college, First day at Wellesley, a woman was handing out flyers and she's like meeting at seven o'clock on Thursday. I was like, okay. And I opened it up and it was for the Asian, you know, affinity group, the Asian group on campus. And I was like, why is she giving this to me? I'm like, I'm so confused. What is happening right now? You know what I mean? What is this? And she didn't even flinch. She was like, she looked at me and she's like, here you go. You got to come to our meeting, seven o'clock or whatever. And I was just like, what's happening? You know? And so immediately I was just, you know, identified as Asian, but then again, I also chose and I elected to be part of the um, black group mm. that was there too. So that was the beginning of me being able to do more than one. And let me tell you a funny story. I remember coming home after my first year, um, not after, during my first year at college, I think it was Christmas, Christmas, New Year's. And I, we went to a family friend's house, I wanna say for a New Year celebration. And a whole bunch of my friends from high school were there. So I walk in and one of my, it's one of my best friend's houses. And then my parents walk in like, you know, right um, behind me. And I don't think people realize those are my parents, you know? <laughs> um, and so what's interesting, people are like, how are you? How's college? You know, I'm coming from Wellesley, which nobody recognizes, you know, really. People are like, I'm coming from Auburn. I'm coming from Florida State. You know what I mean? There, if that wasn't the place that you go from, or that's not the hot place to go. And so anyway, I came in and after like a couple hours, not going to lie. All of us are kind of sloshed. Yes, I know I wasn't 21. Whatever. My parents were very permissive in that way. So <laughs> we're at these, you know, there, and so we'd all been a little bit drinking. And then two, two girls who I've known, I've known since middle school said, who are those nice black people you came in with? They are so nice, Susan. I really had a good time talking to them. I was like, those are my parents. And they're just like, what? I was like, those are my parents. They're just like, I don't understand. They're just like, wait a minute. I, that is so cool. I did not know that black people could adopt white people. Oh my God, stop. I said, well, I think that is possible. However, comma, I am not white. And they're just, I was like, you've known me since seventh grade. What race do you think? And this is what they said. Well, I know you looked a little different and you act a little different, but we just thought you were a special kind of white, like Italian or Mediterranean or something. They're <laughs> like, they're like, I don't understand. And I was, I, I had no words. I was like, I can't, I can't do this, oh. you know? And, and I was just like, uh, uh, you know, what do you say? What do you say to that? Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, through, and then let me tell you, I discovered my blackness for sure when I was at Wellesley because I decided that one of my majors I wanted to be, um, it was equivalent of black studies. It might've been Africana studies, something. It was black studies. And I remember my parents being like, you can't major in black. That's not a thing. You can't major in color. And they were like so upset. They were like, you need to major in something real, concrete, like be pre-med or be pre-law. And they were like, ah. They were like, no, that's no. But anyway, I was very, very Afrocentric. Then my junior year came and my parents really pushed me to apply to this 12 college exchange program mm. to go to um, Spelman for a semester. And I was like, I don't want to go to a historically black college or university. I don't want to go to a black school. I haven't like really like connected to being like to black people in that way because people I'm related to. And they're like, oh God, we have failed. Like hopefully she can't <laughs> You know, I got it. And then when I went there, it was an amazing experience. I turned back into the Asian girl. Because in an all black universe, what sticks out and what's different about me is being Asian. So it was me and there was another 
a woman there. Her name is Kimiko. Mm. Fun story. She was uh, dating Emmett Cosby, Bill Cosby's son at the time. But anyway, there was her, <laughs> Kimiko, and there was me. And we were, and people were like, oh my gosh, there's another Asian girl here too. And I was like, wow, I am just Asian now. Like my blackness has been completely erased at an all black school. So wow. that was my existence. So I became Asian again. So I, so people put me in categories of, are you Asian? Are you black? Or are you multiracial? I don't know, depending on the era, depending hmm. on the environment, but I became that again, which was fascinating. So, you know, and then as I got older, I went to grad school it's things ebbed and flowed, but I've always, one thing that's been consistent with me that I've always been black because America deems me black. Like I know it's not the Jim Crow era, nor was it throughout most of, throughout my lifetime. However, people just, you know, they said, you know, no matter what you're black, you can be black and, but you're always black. Mm-hmm. And in a way that was comforting and good, but the, a way that was kind of jacked up too, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like decision wasn't mine. Mm. Um, if it were, I think I would have chosen it anyway, because that's how I walk through the world in lots of ways. But um, yeah, so it's been very, very interesting. So it's, it's ebbed, it's flowed as far as like how really the universe sees me more than how I see myself. Um, but as uh, an awakened, you know, kind of in touch adult, for sure, I identify myself as Black and Asian. However, to be completely honest with you, like, I don't think you should, it's not like the race Olympics or anything. You shouldn't like say I'm X percent or the gold medal goes to this race. But honestly, my experiences and my heart are much more black identified because they have to be in this country. Mm. I think mm. if I lived someplace else, it'd be different. But here it kind of, it has to be, you know what I mean? I haven't been given that choice as much. And I remember, I don't know, I was a lot younger. I remember Halle Berry was like on the cover of Essence or Ebony and I read this article and she was like, I know my mom's white, but I totally identify as black. And I was like, how can she not identify as a whole nother part of her heritage? And then I remembered, you know, thinking about that again, I think it's very different to be black and white because a lot of people want to empower and give voice to how they walk through the world, but also what is most marginalized. But when you are two things that are marginalized, but to different degrees, it is very different. It is very different. It is very different. So anyway, yeah, that's who I am. You know, it's very, you know, murky and muddy at times and, and messy, but that is kind of how my racial identity formed. And now that I am, you know, a mom, you know, I'm probably not, I, my memory is shot to hell because I'm a mom <laughs> and I'm probably like more practical than intellectual or theoretical. Like, you know what? I don't really care like mm-hmm. what people think. Like, I'm definitely black. I'm definitely Asian. I'm a woman of color. Mm-hmm. I love who I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like embracing it all without being so like headspace about it, you know? So well, and your children are multi-ethnic as well. So yeah. how has it been raising them? <laughs> that is a great question because here's the interesting thing. <laughs> they look different from one another. And one looks very much like me, the other one does not. And I feel like, you know, as a, as a mom, you see what you want to see, but um, it's interesting to kind of see how the world embraces them and responds to them. So my youngest looks Asian. Like, mm-hmm. see, like, like, you know, Denise, who's really my, I call her my sister cousin. She's more like my sister than my cousin. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I had a completely Asian child. Like, how did that happen, Right. So he came out super Asian. He looks more Asian than I do. And, and I mean, I don't know, we haven't done a DNA test, but as far as you know, what his grandparents, he has one monoracial Asian parent who looks just like her. <laughs> Asian. Like, I don't know how it happened. And Denise, I remember when she first saw Carter, she's like, I was like, I'm him. Yeah, an Asian child. So he's like, I'm Asian. My oldest child looks white. So that is um, fascinating. That's how the world kind of sees him. Um, yeah, I was just, it's so funny. I remember, you know, after I gave birth to him, the nurse was like, Hey, do you want us to put, you know, the baby in the nursery? I was like, no, cause I don't think they'll give him back. I'm not sure they'll like pair me. I know we had these little wrist things on, but I was like so nervous having those two children who look like that, but my identity and our identity is such, um, it's, it's interesting. They're still young enough that I haven't had to really, really do it, do it. But I will say, you know, when my kids were little and in strollers and I'm going to the park with the other moms, you know, people all assumed I was the nanny. Nanny for my children, because I had these children who did not look as ethnic as I did, nor that did the, what my first one definitely didn't look of color. And so I was just like, that was fascinating to have, you know, my identifier, yours, definitely of color, 
mm-hmm. um, of being black, of being Asian, and then having people actually, I think they assumed that I was Latina and a nanny. It's so interesting because I've had people come up to me and they'd, they'd be speaking like really not great Spanish with me, asking me a question. I was like, I said, I haven't taken Spanish for many years since I was in school and I don't speak it, but if you could just speak English, I could probably help you. So <laughs> it was very interesting. I yeah. wanted to talk about um, the House of Ho. Well, there's like, you know, a couple shows that are happening right now Ooh, in contemporary Ho. culture. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and when I talk to people who are, you know, of any Asian descent watching these shows, House of Ho and then Bling Empire, I think it's, um, the word that comes up a lot is triggering. I started two days ago. Okay. Watching House of Ho. I've only watched maybe three or four episodes and all of my friends are just like, it is the best thing. I can't stop watching it. I'm so glad there's an Asian voice, you know, cause there's only, they've been so few. Basically there's only been like Mulan. Boilet Club and Crazy Rich Asians in like what Americans, you know, black and white Americans say, that is what I know of, you know, and some soft fresh off the boat. So there's a better luck tomorrow about like all like, you know, the crazy competitive edge of that. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) the stereotypes. (laughs) They read like um, Tiger Mom, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's it. That's it. And so there's like, this is really, this is fascinating. Everybody's like, they're like, it's so funny. It's so funny. So I'm just like, you know what? I need funny in my life. I'm going to watch House of Poe and then watch Bling Empire. 48 hours ago, I watch it. I'm like slightly depressed, tears in my eyes, triggered like, like, like I, you can't believe. I was, and I'm having like these ratatouille moments, but they're not, good. it's not like you eat, you know, the ratatouille and then you go back to a good childhood memory. It's like, you know, they're sitting there, you know, the, the matriarch of the family gives her firstborn son, like, here you go, you love Asian food, here it is in Tupperware. I'm having that, that memory of not, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm having, I'm very much relating to Judy. And what's interesting is that, yes, I am Black identified and Asian. When I watch Hassapo, I'm 100% Chinese. Like, that is all my Chinese existence and memories. And it's very strong because I am not Americanized Chinese, you know what I mean? I was an ESL student. Mm-hmm. I moved here. My mom's an immigrant. You know, my family is new to this country. My Asian side of the family, hella new to this country. So I'm watching it. I'm like having, like my stomach's hurting a little bit. I'm like a little bit holding back tears in some scenes because I'm just like, I have been there. I have felt that. I still feel that. I have PTSD and I probably need like more therapy. Like that's what I'm thinking because everybody's like, it's so light and it's a, it's, it's, it's a great escape. I was like, the hell are y'all watching? You know what I mean? And what skin are you in? Because I'm watching it and I'm triggered tremendously and realizing like how incredibly sexist my upbringing was. Mm. You know, it's incredibly sexist and it was incredibly um, just hard and, you know, not equitable, not fair, not welcoming and not inclusive. And I'm just talking about within the Asianness of it all, yeah. not my other black identity or my multiracial identity, but it was just among the Asian stuff, man, that stunk. A lot yeah. of it stunk. And people were just like, well, you only lived over there until you were like almost five. I was like, it doesn't matter your location. Mm-hmm. Okay. All the isms within mm-hmm. like Asian culture follow you were. <laughs> So they followed me and I realized I was just like, wow, this is not an uncommon story, but it happens so frequently. And to everyone, I was like, this has to stop this feeling so obligated, feeling like you have to carry on the name or legacy or the ancestry, feeling like you can't do X, Y, and Z because it will reflect poorly, feeling like you are lesser than because you're a female, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these things, feeling like you really, really have to marry and procreate in X kind of Asian way. All me. Mm-hmm. All happened to me. And I was just like, holy guacamole. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is crazy town. So watching it, I think I see it from a very different lens. And I'm very curious. I mean, it's not that old, but like how a lot of other, you know, Asian folks are seeing, are seeing this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's like for, you're all you're simultaneously watching it from the outside in because now everybody else has like um, insight into what it is that you experienced, and then also from like the inside out where you're like, wait, now there's like words, and I have different awareness for all the things that I went through that were so unhealthy and like so traumatic, and even just it, like I think that that's a lot of what 
I'm trying to do here too is to give people the words that they need to express the things that they feel that they didn't know. Um, and I think if you're constantly experiencing microaggressions or outward overt aggressions, mm -hmm. it's easy to like shove it real far down because you got to like yeah. figure it out. And then also like, but then once something comes up to be able to like point to it and say like, oh my gosh, like, did you, I, that's what I, that's what happened to me. Like I, I think it's like re-traumatizing and I, I really feel like, you know, there needs to be a whole like therapy session around like these shows that are coming out now. <laughs> In affinity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I think that people who are not, you know, Asian are looking at it and they're thinking, wow, um, it's so cool. But some people, they're on that limited level of like, look at these Asian people and they speak English perfectly and they sound just like us. Like that's where they're stuck. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm looking at this a little bit differently than you. And mm -hmm. I love the character, Judy, who is the, I believe she's the oldest daughter, mm -hmm. but she is definitely seen as, as lesser than, and she's not going to inherit the company or the money. And she's not favored because she wasn't the first son. Mm -hmm. When she has a conversation with her sister-in-law, wait a minute, they're Vietnamese, right? Yeah, I think they're Vietnamese, with her sister-in-law about sex. Because she just told everybody she had a divorce. She just got a divorce. She's like, well, you know, I think they're trying to do like online dating, whatever. Filling out a questionnaire. Just the shock and awe of the sister-in-law of how incredibly open-minded she is about talking about sex and about her own sexuality. I've never seen an Asian character, you know, on film, on screen, mm -hmm. in a book, mm -hmm. you know, that was as free as she was. And I was like, we need more of this. Yes. More honesty. And we need people breaking norms and saying, you know what? I am not you. I don't represent all of that of the yeah. old country, the old world, you know, so to speak. This is a new universe. It's a new universe that you brought me into. Yeah. Yeah. You came to this country in 1976 or whatever it was when they came. Oh my gosh. That was the same year as me, I think. As, as my, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Parallels. <laughs> but like for me, I was just like, I think there's so much greatness and empowering. And again, I'm only a couple episodes in, but I'm, I'm really curious to see, you know, what comes of this. And also I heard that they also got signed for a second season mm. and I'm wondering if it's going to stay authentic mm. or if they're going to try to, you know, Kardashianize it all and just like, mm. this is different. Let's make sure we, you know, commodify it and that we monetize it and make sure we can, you know, continue and have a universal appeal. So mm. everybody, I, I like, forget universe. We don't need universal anything. We need to see what's real, mm -hmm. see what's really genuine. And so, so in ways, I love it. I love it, period. How about that? I love it, but there are moments where I am triggered like no other and tears come to my eyes. I was like, oh my gosh. And it makes me think about like, what am I willing to accept? What am I still trapped in? Mm -hmm. What am I still burdened with? But also, what are the wonderful things and the beautiful things and things that I can celebrate and pass on to my kids? Mm -hmm. But I didn't really think about it that deeply. And this reality show is forcing me to. Well, yeah. And I think that that's the thing about getting um, characters that look like you in books and, you know, characters that look like you on TV. Like you can start at least to reflect upon it because otherwise if we didn't have these like cultural, you know, shows and everything that we wouldn't have an opportunity to actually like think about it for a second and be like, oh, whoa, like, you know, just going through your day to day. I mean, even like just small things. I mean, like, you know, the man that I'm dating now, he's... Um, a white man. And so he was having a conversation, um, with his parents, like they were just talking on the phone and I'm listening, like, you know, I'm in my room, like doing some work and stuff, but like, I could hear like bits every now and again, just whatever daily banter. Yeah. And after he got off the phone, I, we ended up going for a walk that night and I was like, you know, I think it's really cool that you can have a conversation with your parents just about daily things. Like it's easy. Cause I can't have that conversation with my parents because we don't speak the same language. And like, oh gosh, yes, we just, I can't even ask them. I mean, like just even basic elementary dialogue can be challenging. So then it's like an extra barrier. And so if I want to make that concerted effort to connect to my parents, not only are there the whole, am I going to be judged for this thing that I say or this thing that I do? Like there's the bigger, you know, ideas, but even just the small day-to-day -day conversations. And it really made me realize like, wow, you're able to have a completely different relationship with your parents for that mere fact alone, that you can share a language and there's no barrier there that you can just say, hi, hello, how are you doing? What are you up to? And I can't, and he, after I said that to him, he was like, whoa, <laughs> like it was like, 
that would never, that thought, why would that have ever come up for him? Like that would never come up. And so I think that these shows and, you know, for better or for worse, at least start to allow us to like kind of have that sort of conversation and the expand awareness. Cause that just that small moment alone yeah. brought us closer together because it lent a new lens of compassion or awareness or understanding. And so I think that that's what I hope happens more and more is like not the cancel culture that we're all a part of, or like yeah. the, I don't understand, like whatever, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Like just those small moments can make such a big difference. They can. I have a question for you. I'm mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. ask you a question because this is fascinating because I, I'm trying to figure out my answer too. Do you think that there is hope? And I'm going to give you my answer. I'm actually going to ask you and not answer it myself. Do you think there is hope for, you know, our parents to be capable of and have the desire to have those hello, how are you conversations and to have that closeness? That's my question. Number one. Number two, is it unrealistic or, or is it kind of Americanizing or white culture lensing, you know, on what relationships should be between adults and children? Because that, that's the thing that I think of because I'm trying, like, I do not have conversations with my Chinese mother that are number one, authentic, very, we get super angry with each other. Yeah. <laughs> What? Then it's super authentic. And it's, but then again, I've damaged our relationship for like years to come and it takes so much. I've been just disrespectful. And I don't understand the Chinese way. So for me, I don't know. I wish in my heart of hearts, mm-hmm. I could have the relationships that I've seen my friends have, mm-hmm. you know, my friends who are, you know, white and black American, mm-hmm. they have with their, their, their mothers or their parents. I was just like, oh my gosh, I would love to have that. But I don't think we're capable because we've had years and years and years of damage and years of me censoring myself mm-hmm. so that I try, I, try, I, I fail miserably. Mm-hmm. I try to not be disrespectful, but I also try to be myself. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm just like, I don't think I'm ever going to have that. And then I thought, am I just being selfish, mm. wanting to fit my mother's way of mothering mm. to, and let's not say American, it's a white culture thing. Mm. Mm. Like white people, you know, in America are very much like, my kid is my best friend, you know? They're somebody who I can go to. If I, I know my mom will always be there for me, where that is not on my white, not on my Asian or my black side of my family. You know what I mean? And so for me, I was just like, I'm, I'm conflicted. Do I try to have this close relationship? Or is that just not possible for an Asian mother and child? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, oh, that's such a good question. I love that you asked yeah. that. Um, when you were talking, I kept thinking about growing pains. And like when I was growing up, if I were allowed to watch TV, if I were, then that was the show that I wanted to watch. And just thinking like, what would it feel like to be like so loved and like so adored? Like, what would that be like? And so I think that that idea of like, you know, the white family is that in my mind is like, ooh. And then the other thing that I thought about when you were talking is Aquafina in that movie, like the long farewell or um, whatever it was. It was based on a um, NPR story I actually heard, but like how the adult, the adults in the Asian family decided not to tell the matriarch that she had a terminal illness. And so Aquafina, who was raised in Western culture, was like, what are you doing? You can't not tell her that she's dying. That's not fair. That's not a choice you get to make. Right. And they're like, yes, it is. Like, that is the choice we are making as like a collective, better for her kind of thing. And watching that and feeling so conflicted because she has to grasp like whether or not it is the better thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she was raised differently. So she has different ideals. But then in the end, and spoiler alert, just going to let you know how it ends, but that the grandmother ends up living because she doesn't know she has this diagnosis. So like, yeah, in the NPR story and in this movie, she ends up living. Like, so was it a bad thing that they did that? And like, so to, I feel like, um, you know, similar to you, there have been years of damage. Like I know that at some point my mom tried to like reach out, you know, like, but it was also when I was in the middle of my eating disorder therapy and I was dredging up all of my past and being like, it's too little too late. You're not going to fix this. So, but then like, you know, and then also us becoming mothers and then reflecting upon like what that's like, you know, um, I thought I would have certain like, I thought I would have a lot more compassion, I think, for my mother because 
I had become a mother. But instead, I started thinking like, well, I love my daughter so much and I have done so many hard things to protect her from certain adult things because she's a child. And then to think like, why didn't you do that? Like, why couldn't you have like gotten it together just a little bit more? But then again, that's like me having all of my judgments and her having a completely different upbringing where she's literally fleeing from like communists and like, you know, so I think it's so difficult and and like you said, like it gets real charged real fast, <laughs> like lots of judgments like going on. So it's just easier not to talk about like, you know, certain things. And I think that the only resolution that I've tried to come up with is that at least with my daughter, I try to, you know, open up the lines of communication. I mean, we have that shared languaging, but, um, but there are still elements that in my upbringing, I thought I would never appreciate, but I actually really do appreciate. And like, you know, I bring into my own parenting. So um, that's a long-winded answer to say like, I have no idea. (laughs) It's like, I think we all want connection and love and affection for sure. And looks like, who knows what that looks like with an Asian mother and an Asian daughter. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know that the, I crave, I crave to have a closer relationship where I can really feel something and for there to be warmth there. It can look different. I'm open to looking different, but I don't know if it's possible because I think she desperately wants to make sure that I know that I'm loved and, but she can't do it. And I definitely want my mom to feel like she's respected because I do. She's got mm-hmm. some qualities and I'm like, you are a badass. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I feel like there's something in the way. So I mm-hmm. hope we can figure it out. Yeah, I hope so too. And I think you're right. Like, I think they do love us in their own ways as best yes. as they know. I can't imagine it was easy for them, you know, like, um, so yeah. But as we close this interview, I wanted to ask you, the yeah. name of the podcast is Fuck Saving Face. So if there were one thing that you could say of like, you know, wishing that would just be like a paradigm that could change or like um, some sort of thing that we've always done that could be done differently or whatever it is, what would you say? Like, is there a taboo you want to like shine a light on or? It's so interesting. You said something and I was like, I need another five hours with you to talk about it. But you mentioned something about, um, disordered eating, which I actually have struggled with disordered eating on both sides, Mm -hmm. disordered overeating, disordered under eating, Mm -hmm. a lot of it dealing with Asian identities. So I feel like one, you know, myth about um, Asian women is that no matter what, we have perfect bodies that were naturally very thin, you know, Asian don't raise them, you know, I was like, that doesn't even rhyme, but you know, I was, and I might have made that up because I was like, black don't crack and Asian don't raisin. But there's so many myths about like, you know, Asian women and like beauty ideals and that we are forever going to look timeless. We are never going to wrinkle. We are never going to, you know, have saddlebags and cellulite. And I was like, well, let me give you, you know, it's A, B, and C, number one. And it's really, really tough because expectations mm-hmm. for Asian women are different. There's so many. I've got like 10 in my head, but that was the mm-hmm. first one that came to light. Mm-hmm. Came to mind for. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, um, that's a big topic. We'll have to dive into it another time because um, I was always the only Asian person in any sort of eating disorder therapy, whether it was like, you know, outpatient support groups, like whatever, not because other Asian women didn't suffer from these things at all, but just because I was willing to like be out and like public about it. And like, you know, yeah, you think that, Oh, because you look a certain way, you know, this, but as we all know, like with so many addictions or like, you know, different challenges, disorders and whatnot. It's usually not about the thing. It's about the other underlying things. So the underlying things was all the anger that I had and the rage. So, you know, I compulsively overate. I was anorexic, but my disordered eating of choice was bulimia because I was so angry and it's such a violent um, disease that you like shove all this food in yourself and then you make it come back out in such like in a, a, you know, intense kind of way. So yeah. And that's like a lot of it was the Asian um, impact, but ditto. (laughs) (laughs) let me just be very, very eloquent. Ditto girl. Ditto. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I think, you know, there's a show that I've been watching, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, and the second season. I watching that ah, too. yes. They brought in uh, one of the characters is married to an Asian woman, um, and then her sister comes. And I, her sister is, you know, bigger mm-hmm. yep, and louder and doesn't have it all together. Like, thick, and I'm like, yes, like at least you're breaking some stereotypes with this character so you know hopefully there'll be more of that too more sex talk all of it thank you you have literally i feel so much more empowered and real and i've um, thought of things uh, in a very different and new way so i thank you for this oh thank you i'm so excited so if people want to um follow up with you because i know that you had a youtube channel and like you know um all of this stuff, or if anybody just wants to connect with you, how can they connect with you? Yeah, so this is not really of my Asian identity or any identity. This is what I do for self-care because I definitely believe that um, self-care isn't self-care, it's self-preservation. Mm. And so right now during these fascinating and unprecedented and unpredictable and all those little you know, silly terms that people use to describe what we're going through right now, that is how I relax, that is how I release, that's how I de- decompress, is I do these little fun YouTube videos. It's Simply Susan on YouTube. And then um, if anybody wants to get in touch with me and they want to have a further conversation or a chit chat or anything, they can reach me at simplysusanlivingoutloud at gmail.com. Mm. And I am newly, very terribly, on Instagram at simplysusanxo. So those are the three places you can, you can find me. That's awesome. I think maybe you and I need to start like a group therapy processing for all the shows that are coming out. <laughs> maybe we should do that. Because I am crying in my bed alone at night being super sad about things. And yes, that would be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so okay. much. Oh my gosh, I'm doing the Asian club. I'm <laughs> what I'm saying. But yay. Yes, I am. Oh my God. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned, subscribe to us on any platform that you're listening to this amazing podcast and share it with a friend. Also, if you believe in what we're doing, we highly encourage you to go to patreon.com forward slash FCK, fuck saving face and make a donation. That way we can keep bringing content like this into the world. Stay tuned for Friday's mindfulness practice. Talk to you soon.